This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, hello and welcome to New Books in History on the History Channel of the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis and I'm your host. Today I'm talking with Dr. Walker Robbins, lecturer in history at Merrimack College and the author of Between Dixie and Zion, Southern Baptist and Palestine Before Israel, published by the University of Alabama Press in 2020. Dr. Robbins, congratulations on the book and welcome to New Books in History. Hi, Lane. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into the book, uh, why don't you start by just introducing yourself a bit more? Tell us about your training, your research, what led you into this uh, topic? Yeah, so I'm uh, originally from Oklahoma, uh, did all three of my degrees at the University of Oklahoma. And I, I grew up pretty religious, so I, I grew up Episcopalian, but in this kind of more evangelical environment in Oklahoma, and was always just fascinated in religion, fascinated in my own faith, fascinated uh, by, by other people's faiths. And in particular, kind of when I was coming out of high school, going into college, I had a lot of friends who were involved in like mission work. Uh, some of them were involved in foreign missions. And that was the sort of thing I was always like really drawn to, really interested in. I thought it was so fascinating. I thought the idea of like going and engaging with other cultures was so interesting and like trying to do good along the way. But at the same time, I always kind of had this I like couldn't quite go there. I, I always was so interested in other faiths that I couldn't myself um, go out and try to proselytize, basic, basically, which is what a, a lot of my friends were involved in. And so I think the, the, those interests kind of got channeled for me in this more academic direction. So rather than being out there involved in mission work myself, I really started studying missionaries and pursued that in graduate school while I was getting my history master's and history PhD. And from there, just kind of pivoted to this interest in broader interfaith and intercultural encounters. So that was always just kind of an interest I had that just manifested itself in this academic way. And so that's what I studied at the University of Oklahoma. Um, I was originally a film student, but just, you know, kind of kind of shifted along the way, actually. And then once I, I finished my PhD, I taught there for a bit, but then I was drawn out to New England uh, by Brandeis University. I, I was a postdoc at the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. Ended up out here in Massachusetts, and I've been here ever since over the last three years. And now, like you said, I'm at Merrimack College teaching U.S. history, and it's uh, a pretty great gig. Awesome. Awesome. Well, very cool. Well, your book certainly... Uh, is a really fascinating look into this interfaith uh, connection, specifically between Southern Baptist and the formation of the state of Israel. So let's dive into the main argument of the book. Um, a lot of people that I talk with today, especially those that perhaps don't really have their finger on the pulse of modern American evangelical culture, sort of look at the overwhelming support that conservative evangelicals have for the state of Israel and don't quite understand the link. Um, in fact, even some conservative evangelical Christians I, I talk with don't completely understand why their churches give such full-throated support to Israel, and yet they know that this is kind of what they're supposed to do, and so so they do it. So your, your book argues basically that evangelicals, and you're specifically looking at Southern Baptist um, here, 
that they didn't always fit as neatly into these pro-Israel categories. Um, so discuss your argument a little bit. How did you come to this sort of multifaceted understanding of evangelical engagement with Israel? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what, what I wanted to do with the research initially, I, I was interested in Christian support for Zionism and Christian support for Israel, you know, what we would call Christian Zionism today. Uh, there had already been a number of good books written about that, kind of explaining some of the intellectual underpinnings of that. And what I was interested in was fitting that into the broader context, like how did that perspective come to to win out um, or, or at least you know claim a, a significant majority of, of white evangelical Protestants in the United States. And so um, my, what, what I wanted to do was basically recapture the entirety of the conversation, just figure out kind of what evangelicals, like anything they had to say, like what were they saying about the Holy Land? What were they saying about Palestine, uh, the land of Israel prior to the establishment of the state of Israel? I just wanted to hear, you know, everything anyone was saying about it and to figure out how this idea of, of being supportive for Zionism did or didn't figure into that broader conversation. And so looking at evangelicalism, you know, writ large would have been a really, really massive task. So I decided to kind of uh, circumscribe it a bit, uh, get a more manageable chunk of the evangelical community. And so I focused on the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. or has been, you know, throughout the, the 20th century. And is, it's kind of, it's, it's you know, a, a democratic um, structure in terms of, of the actual structure of the Southern Baptist Convention. There's not like an overriding Southern Baptist, you know, theological doctrine so it's kind of a good place to start if you want an experiment to see how a conversation w- was unfolding about the Holy Land. And basically, uh, this is a real sophisticated methodology I used here. I, I just tried to read anything I could that any Southern Baptist was writing about Palestine, um, you know, in the decades leading up to the establishment of Israel in, in 1948. And yeah, what I found is that when you jump into those sources from these decades, that the the categories of of like pro Zionist or pro Arab really don't quite fit. Uh, you definitely you had you know Southern Baptists who who were very supportive of Zionism. You had Southern Baptists who supported the Palestinian cause, but that idea that that you should as a Southern Baptist have a particular political orientation or even religious orientation to this question was not quite there. And what I found instead like. Southern Baptists were, were saying a lot. They were saying a lot about Palestine, but they had a whole bunch of different priorities apart from the political question of who would control the Holy Land, which was, was called the Palestine question um, during these decades. And uh, that was basically the starting point for the book. Like, what were the different encounters, the different types of encounters that Southern Baptists had? Um, what were their priorities in those encounters? And what I found is that, you know, these distinct... Southern Baptist priorities were really what shaped the way that different Southern Baptists thought about um, the land, the people, and the politics of, of what was then uh, mandatory Palestine, Palestine under British rule. Uh, the political categories, they just hadn't really set in um, in these decades. Huh, very interesting. So we're going to talk about a couple of the characters that um, recur throughout your book, but one of the, one of the main ones is... Uh, a man named J. Frank Norris. And he's actually a figure I'm 
personally interested in as well as I'm recording this morning from Fort Worth, Texas, where uh, he was pastor at the First Baptist Church here for a lot of years. So talk about him specifically in the role that he played in the formation of a particular pro-Zionist stance in the in the 40s and the 50s. Well, where to begin with J. Frank Norris? <laughs> yes, he is a multifaceted character. I usually like to shot with the or start. Oh, there you go, Freudian slip. Usually like to start with the fact that he shot a man in his office, which is uh, <laughs> the most interesting thing about him. Um, so Norris was a renegade figure kind of within and then without the Southern Baptist Convention in the first part of the 20th century. He, he basically, uh, he had this you know huge church, like you said, First Baptist in Fort Worth that, that effectively was kind of pushed out of the Texas Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Convention. He was a part of the broader fundamentalist movement, um, which was seeking in many ways to, to purge modernists out of various church institutions and whatnot. And so he had this sort of mission for the Southern Baptist Convention, which wasn't exactly run through um, with modernists in the early 20th century. So he was kind of this radical, uh, controversial figure, but he did have like a, a big following, you know, not only outside of the Southern Baptist Convention amongst uh, more fundamentalist independent Baptists, but, but within it, like there were a lot of Southern Baptists mm. who remained within the convention that, that really, uh, you know, followed a lot of Frank Norris's teachings, read his periodicals, uh, that sort of thing. And what distinguished Frank Norris in, during these decades is that, so he, he kind of, I, I call this the Norris synthesis. He combined two tendencies that were well, one was emerging within the Southern Baptist Convention and one was already there. So Norris was uh, a dispensationalist. He had a dispensationalist interpretation of the Bible, uh, although it evolved over time. And, and basically, in a nutshell, without going into too much detail, um, you know, he believed that there was an ongoing, that, that God's covenant with Israel in the Bible is ongoing, that, that God is still in a covenantal relationship with the Jewish people and that this covenantal relationship will come into culmination at the end of the current age with Christ's second coming and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so he was a proponent of those sorts of beliefs. And he came to argue, and, and it wasn't you know 100% that premillennialist or premillennial dispensationalists believed this at this point in time, but, but many of them did. He argued that the Zionist movement was part of this, this plan, part of God's plan mm -hmm. for history. Now, at the same time, he, he trafficked in um, a, a kind of, I, I call it in the book, an inflamed Orientalism. So one of the, the key findings in this book is that Southern Baptists consistently, no matter their political perspective, no matter their religious perspective, drew Orientalist contrast between Zionists and the Arabs when talking and writing about Palestine during this time period. In other words, they viewed the Zionist movement as an outpost basically of Western civilization in what many considered to be like the dead and dying East as one mm. uh, Southern Baptist traveler put it. And Norris, so like every Southern Baptist is saying that, you know, that's, that's how they understand this dynamic that was unfolding during Palestine during this era. But Norris takes that and he cranks it up to 11, which, you know, mm. if you know him, that was his style. And so he, he, depicts, um, you know, the unfolding dispute within Palestine between Zionists and Arabs as, as really a clash of civilizations, that he believes the Zionists were destined by God and, and kind of by their cultural and civilizational fitness to win. 
And so he really stitched these two things together. The idea that Zionism was part of God's plan for history, that the land of Israel or Palestine was uh, covenantally deeded to the Jewish people, but also that there was this clash of civilizations in which, you know, uh, American fundamentalist or even Baptist Christians uh, and Zionists were on the same side of, and that the Arabs were on the opposing side of. And that synthesis, putting those two things together, I think becomes really characteristic of a lot of evangelical support for Israel in the decades moving forward. Uh, and among those within the Southern Baptist Convention, like Norris makes those arguments. You have other figures that are going to follow him in making those arguments, trying to convince more and more Southern Baptists, more and more Baptists broadly, more and more evangelicals broadly, that it's their duty as Christians and as Americans to be supportive of Zionism and in the state of Israel. Hmm. Yeah, I, th I think the discourse that you really show in this book is fascinating, and we're going to get back to that. So let's let's kind of look at the first chapter of your book. You note that the, I'm quoting here, the primary way in which Southern Baptists encountered contemporary Ottoman Palestine, and you're talking about 19th century Ottoman mm -hmm. Palestine there, was through travel and travel literature. So talk about this 19th century development and then specifically how it changed after World War I when Southern Baptists found a very different region. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, in the late 19th century, or like prior to the 19th century in general, you, you really didn't have Westerners traveling to the Ottoman Empire at all, like for, for a variety of different reasons. But in the late 19th mm -hmm. century, you start to have some developments that will allow for uh, the creation of basically a travel infrastructure that allows middle class Americans and Europeans to be able to you know, book all-inclusive passages and to, and to go and, and visit uh, the sites in the Holy Land that they'd read about in the Bible. Um, and, and so with these new opportunities created, you do start to have some Southern Baptists who are actually encountering Ottoman Palestine on the ground, and they're writing about it, they're publishing it in the state Baptist periodicals, they're publishing books about it. And in these writings, in these depictions, you can see they're really cut through with, with you know, what I mentioned earlier with, with Orientalism. Um, a lot of these individuals, the Baptists who were writing about Palestine and getting to go on these trips, these were kind of these upwardly mobile, um, you know, pastors who were, were getting the, the, these uh, nice congregations in some of the growing cities in the South. And they're very, very focused on matters of like material progress. And so when they're going to Palestine and they're looking around uh, and they, they just see it as this really, really backward land and they view the people there as backward. Um, they view, you know, this, the towns are crowded and filthy. The agriculture is quaint. I mean, you read these accounts and you can see they're, they're very like fixated on the ways that uh, the Arab peasant class, the, the uh, Fahim, they, they farm like with this single handed plow and they're just really fixated on this sort of thing. They view it as backward. They view the local faiths and that's Islam, uh, Christianity, Catholic and uh, Orthodox Christianity and, and Judaism as all like basically backward part of an Islamic tinged backward mass basically. And they make the case again and again and again that, that Palestine will never be um, redeemed or made modern or made progressive until uh, Protestant Christianity arrives and with it material progress, modernity, progressive ideas and things of that sort. So that's kind of like the general overall picture. If you look across all of these different travelogues from this time period prior to World War One, 
when the British conquered Palestine from the Ottomans. That's what they're emphasizing. This is a backward place. The Turks have misruled it. The religion is backward. There's no progress here except where, you know, Protestant Christianity has little footholds. Now, what changes after World War I, as you mentioned, is that almost overnight, you, you have this shift in how Southern Baptists view the Jewish community. And this is because, you know, during World War I, Britain conquers Palestine, um, takes over under a League of Nations mandate. And written into that mandate was a promise that the British Foreign Office had made to uh, the Jewish community during the war, the Balfour Declaration, which pledged the British to facilitate the creation of a Jewish national home in Palestine. And with that kind of agreement, Zionists are going to settle. You'd already had Zionists settling prior to World War I, but this is really going to encourage uh, mass Zionist uh, investment migration into Palestine. And Southern Baptists see this. And what you see happen in their depictions of the region during this era, again, it's, it's called the Mandate Era to refer to the era of, of British rule, is that the Zionists and the Jewish community are kind of pulled out. They, they kind of pull them out from the, what they viewed as the backward mass of, um, uh, of the East and start to view them as a manifestation of Western civilization and progress and modernity. And I think, you know, part of the key reason for this is that, well, the, Palestine was going through a lot of changes, right, after World War I. There was a lot more uh, economic investment in the region, and the Zionists played a huge role in that. But the economy as a whole was really, really growing. Like the Arab uh, economy was, was modernizing. It was starting to grow. The Zionist economy was growing very, very rapidly. But when Southern Baptists visited the, the Zionist progress looked familiar. It looked like progress to them. You know, you have these Bauhaus buildings in Tel Aviv. The streets are wide. They look like European. They're really like seriously fixated on, on the width of the streets, uh, drawing these sorts of contrast in the way that they Baptists had previously been drawing contrast between like, you know, Western Christians, Western Protestant Christians and inhabitants of the Holy Land. Now they're drawing the same sorts of contrast between the Zionists and, and the Arabs. Hmm. Well, so you note that the Southern Baptists um, lagged behind the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists in terms of having concrete ties to the region until about the 1910s. And, and you then specifically point towards a man named uh, Shukri Mosa, correct me if I'm saying that wrong, um, and, and his family is really the catalyst for Southern Baptist efforts in Palestine. So tell, tell us about him and, and his work. Yeah, so uh, Sugar Moose is a really interesting character, he and his wife, uh, Munira. So first off, I think the thing I've got to mention on an academic podcast like this is that he's actually Edward Said's grandfather. Um, and if, oh, interesting. Yeah, and huh. so this is actually, yeah. and that's a huge family of, of like these really uh, fantastic scholars, including Jean Said Mokdesi, who wrote a kind of quasi-memoir about um, her relationship with her mother and her her grandmother, uh, Munira Musa, who was was Shukri Musa's wife, um, and so I, that that immediately got my interest in looking at his life. But then he also just has like this very interesting biography. So he is born in Safed or, or Sfat um, in, in the northern part of of what what's now Israel or what was uh, you know con considered Palestine, and he 
kind of bounced around. He kind of had like this, this middle-class career. He was involved in the civil service for a little bit within the Ottoman empire. It seems, um, he married Munira, uh, Bader, Munira Yusuf Bader, who was from a, uh, kind of a, a Protestant families that came from the, the more congregationalist, uh, Presbyterian milieu in, in Lebanon, where you'd had these American missions, for, for decades at this point in time. So her, her father was a prominent pastor, actually, in that tradition. Uh, she and Shukri wed at, at the beginning of the 20th century. He converted, it seems, to Presbyterianism or something close to it, uh, but then decided, like many inhabitants of the Ottoman Empire were doing at that point in time, to, to come to the United States to try to seek some economic opportunities for himself. And so he comes to the U.S. and he starts going through Texas and he's peddling. And it seems that he was probably peddling Holy Land souvenirs, like going door to door, just trying to get a, a toehold here in the United States uh, to maybe, you know, I don't know, bring back uh, some economic fortune to his family, maybe eventually bring them over. It's not exactly clear. We don't have great sourcing on that. But what ends up happening is he runs into what would become some really, really prominent Southern Baptists uh, in the state of Texas. George Truett, who becomes kind of the Texas Baptist of the first part of the 20th century. There's a Truett Street in every uh, town in Texas, pretty much. Um, and L.R. Scarborough, who uh, was the became the head of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He converted to Baptist Christianity and decided to go back and start to spread Baptist Christianity to his people. Now, initially, he was supported uh, by this, the Southern Illinois Baptist Convention. He really couldn't find support from the SBC or the Foreign Mission Board within the Southern Baptist Convention itself. And he just starts, he starts by converting his family members. He starts small. He converts his nephew. He converts Munira. Um, they establish a small congregation. They moved pretty quickly to Nazareth. And, you know, by the time World War I rolled around, they had this really, really tiny congregation. The war screwed everything up. He himself was drafted into the Ottoman military. Uh, a lot of people were, uh, of, of the few uh, converts, uh, several of them ended up moving after the war. So this really set back the mission. But after it, they started building. And the SBC took over, started providing financial support to Shukri and Munira, and then started sending uh, superintendents, uh, foreign missionaries, like white Americans over there, uh, as they sought to organize and kind of take over this mission that he himself had built. And so Shukri Musa becomes really the first serious channel that Southern Baptists have with Palestine during this time period. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So, yeah, you note, these, you note some of these American missionaries, and they're coming over with their own sort of Orientalist priors and their own particular view of what mission work should look like in the land. So... Uh, can you discuss the introduction of these American missionaries specifically and 
and especially, uh, I, I guess some of them didn't work out quite so well, specifically a Reverend ha- uh, Hamlet you mentioned. Uh, so, so talk about how that, how that sort of, uh, uh, progressed. Yeah. So coming out of world war one in general, the Southern Baptist convention was investing a lot and expanding its, its global missionary footprint and Palestine gets fitted into that. They, they immediately seek to expand what was called the, the near East mission. And the first step in that was, as you mentioned, appointing, they wanted to make sure that Americans were overseeing these missions. So even though Shukri right. Musa had founded it, he was classed as, as what they called a native worker. Um, and right. so he received like less pay, for instance, than the, the foreign missionaries who would start arriving in the 1920s. The first guy to arrive was a disaster. Um, his, as you mentioned, his name is W.A. Hamlet. He was, he was kind of like a rising star, it seems, in Oklahoma and Texas, like within the Baptist conventions there. Um, he traveled to Palestine in 1911. He published a book about it called like Travels of a Father and Son. And, you know, every, every Southern Baptist that I read pretty much during this era had these kind of Orientalist preconceptions about people in the region. None was as like vitriolic and hateful about it as W.A. Hamlet. Um, hmm. I mean, he has these extended peons to Imperial Britain talking about how, you know, you got to kill a few people to bring in modern ideas, things of that sort. Um, so this was enough to get him appointed as the first uh, superintendent of the Near East Mission. Uh, so he left his pastorate. He was the, the pastor of First Baptist in, in Austin. So not a bad gig, but he left that to go be a missionary in Palestine. Um, he meets Musa. He's making all of these big promises. We're going to build a school. We're going to build a church, all of this stuff. And then he leaves within two months. He, he gets out of there. He comes back. He quits. Um, he takes over, he he goes back to his pastorate in Austin for a little bit, but then he leaves that too. And what ended up happening to W.A. Hamlet was that he decided to become a roving spokesperson for the revived Ku Klux Klan. So he becomes a Mm. speaker for the Klan. Uh, and then I guess does a good enough job in that, that he gets promoted to be the editor of the Klan's national periodical, the, the Courier. So he moves to Georgia also, it seems divorced his wife, started a new family. Like there was a lot going on with W.A. Hamlet as of 1921 and 1922. Uh, but one like kind of weird side note is that if you if you look at the Klan's national magazine, The Courier, and this is a time period where the Klan was really, really, you know, growing in the United States in the early 1920s. It was anonymously edited, but it was edited by Hamlet. And if you read, like look into it the first year that he was taking over as editor, there are all of these like articles about the Holy Land. And, you know, that might seem a weird thing. Like, why are there so many articles about the Holy Land in the Klan's periodical? Uh, And actually, these were repurposed articles that Hamlet had written um, from his earlier travels, from his time as a missionary that end up making it into uh, the the Klan's periodical. That's kind of just a, a fascinating aside from this one character who was really a disaster as a missionary. Like, once he left He'd made all of these promises. This almost sunk the mission because this was a tiny community, like really depending on outside support um, and Mm -hmm. faith that the Southern Baptists would pony up and help them actually build their institutions. And so when he didn't make good on any of those promises, this this was a real crisis for this already small membership in the church. But within a couple of years, you have some more uh, responsible uh, 
careful missionaries appointed, uh, J. Wash Watts and Maddie Watts were appointed in the 1920s. They um, really, it, it seems, cooperated with Shukri Musa, um, you know, kind of gave him some autonomy and support in building his work in Nazareth. They started planting the seeds of Baptist work in Jerusalem. Um, they even experimented in Tel Aviv. They didn't really quite get anything going there, but they're able to get the mission on some stable footing. Again, in no small part because they were deferring to locals on a lot of these matters. And, and from there, the mission would grow. Now, one of the important things that happens as you have these foreign missionaries arriving is that they do start to crowd out. Like Shukri Musa had been kind of the spokesperson for the mission in Palestine into 1919, 1920, you know, publishing brief articles in uh, the, the state uh, uh, Texas Baptist periodical uh, and things of that sort. But now really everything is going to be routed through those foreign missionaries. And so their understanding of the region, um, in, including a lot of their Orientalist presumptions, are going to, to really start to proliferate in, in like the Baptist press. Like that's who's writing about Palestine in um, you know, the Baptist missionary periodicals and things of that sort. Right. And you know, it wasn't just, um, or the mission wasn't just happening in the Holy Land, but the mission, there was also a mission happening on the home front per se in the U.S. Yeah. And you, you make an interesting intervention regarding the life of one prominent Southern Baptist missionary, Jacob Gartenhouse. And you note that he's garnered some scholarly attention before. I think I'd run across him in something I'd read before, but, but mostly as a prominent example of a Baptist missionary to the Jews. And you, you turn that around. Could you tell us about how Garden House, uh, or, or specifically what his mission was, what the scholarship has been on him up to this point, and how your, your study really reframes his contribution? Yeah, so Gartenhouse is who got me into all of this thing. So he was, I, I did research on him for my master's thesis way back in the day. And, and this was one of the things that struck me when I first started looking into him. I was really, you know, kind of like I mentioned at the outset, I was really interested in missionaries and like these encounters between people of, of different faiths. And Gartenhouse was a particularly interesting missionary because he was the only Southern Baptist missionary to the Jewish people between uh, like 1921 and, and 1949. That's when he worked there. Hmm. And he was effectively the only one. Um now, there wasn't like a gigantic Jewish population in the South at that point in time, but there was a significant one. Uh, and, and so it's kind of it's kind of wild that there was only this one guy who was tasked with evangelizing, you know, people distributed all throughout the South. And in looking at his mission, you know, what I did find is that in, in actual practice, so he did, he, he proselytized, he did try to get, uh, you know, Jewish Southerners to convert to Christianity. But far more of his actual, well, and this is the way he's kind of been interpreted as like manifesting the Baptist faith to, right. to Jews and to the, to uh, the outside world more broadly, representing a Baptist perspective on, um, on, on Judaism. But really when you look into what he was actually doing on the ground, the vast majority of his time was spent educating Baptists on his understanding of Jews and Judaism and trying to mobilize Baptist congregations to get involved in Jewish evangelism. So his his mission, it's technically to the Jews of the South, but it's really to Southern Baptists. And he becomes right. the de facto Baptist spokesperson on issues relating to Jews and Judaism during these crucial, crucial decades, right? The 1930s, the 1940s. This is when we have the refugee crisis. This is when we have growing anti-Semitism in the United States. This is when we have the Holocaust and the establishment of Israel. 
And Gartenhouse becomes, uh, you know, in an earlier article I wrote about him, I called him the Southern Baptist Jew. That's basically the position that he held within the convention, really interpreting these things for Baptist audiences. Hmm. Now, you, you note that he was particularly effective in speaking to Southern Baptist women. So in your study, what role did you find that gender played in Southern Baptist missionary efforts, um, either home or abroad? Yeah, well, so there, there are two dimensions to, to that. So in one dimension, kind of thinking about how gender was deployed in making uh, arguments about Palestine, right? So when you're, you're looking at some of these Orientalist depictions of Palestine that, that so many Southern Baptists trafficked in, Often gender dynamics were at the heart of that. The idea that Arab men, if they didn't convert to Christianity, unconverted Arab men, um, you know, mistreated their wives and children. That, that was a big part of the argument for, you know, we need to invest in missions. We need to convert these people. We need to help Arab men become better fathers and better husbands. Like that, that gender dynamic was very much uh, entrenched in the Orientalism that, that I see you know, kind of across the board there. In terms of, there's also the, the dynamic of the different roles that men and women had within the Southern Baptist Convention related to kind of interpreting and engaging with the broader world. And one of the institutions I focus on is the, the Women's Missionary Union, which was the SBC's auxiliary. So there were all these local organizations. They're basically missionary auxiliaries. So the missionary organizations mm-hmm. were controlled by men, but you had these WMUs that were tasked with fundraising to help the mission efforts and were tasked, most importantly for my purposes, with uh, mission study, with educating the Baptist public on mission work. So this is actually a crucial way through which so many Southern Baptists encountered, well, the world in general, but but uh, Palestine in particular uh, for the purposes of, of my study. And so, hmm. for example, the Women's Missionary Union had monthly programming that was distributed through their periodical. It was called Royal Service. And each month they had a specific missionary focus. They would educate people on a particular uh, mission topic or on a particular mission field. And they had all of this programming, like all of these uh, lessons uh, that that local communities could use, that local WMUs could use in educating people on, on Palestine, on the Jewish people, on Arabs and things of that sort. Uh, they had skits outlined. They had uh, biblical passages, interpretations that they would provide to people. And so altogether, I, I can't remember the exact number. I think there were 14, perhaps, um, issues of the Royal Service that indicate 14 months of programming related in some way to Palestine during this mm. time period, like between World War I and between the establishment of Israel in 1948. And, and so this becomes a crucial vehicle. I don't know that there's a, a, a more widespread way in which Southern Baptists were educated on Palestine uh, than the efforts of the WMU. Hmm. So, so to circle back to Garden House for just a minute, so his departure from the Southern Baptist Convention, it seems like was not done on very good terms. <laughs> what what kind of happened there? What was going on? We're having a lot of interesting departures from the missionary boards of, of the Southern yeah, Baptist yeah. Convention. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is uh, another thing that turned up actually originally in my, my master's research that uh, caused me to gasp when I found it in the archives, one of those rare moments. Uh, so Gartenhouse has an autobiography that he wrote uh, decades later in the 1980s called Traitor, and it's about his conversion and then about his work as a, a missionary. And in it, he 
so he, he left the home mission board of the Southern Baptist Convention in uh, 1949. And in his autobiography, he, he says that this was a matter of the uh, home mission board not taking his advocacy for survivors of the Holocaust seriously enough, not taking Jewish missions seriously enough, that he was kind of being squeezed by the higher ups. And so he ended up leaving. Um, and in actual fact, when you go back and look into the archives, what we find is that he, he was accused of some sort of, it seems, sexual misconduct by uh, a, a young woman who was uh, hired to, to help him out as part of the, the Jewish department. And so it, it's not clear. The details are, are kind of vague. What is clear is that he was accused of something by a woman named uh, Lucille McKinney that he was forced to resign. Um, there was an earlier episode, uh, again, digging in the archives, looking in the Home Mission Board's archives. In the 1930s, he'd been accused of uh, something similar. Again, they tended to be vague about these sorts of infractions right. at that point in time. That had been settled, like they'd had a meeting with the person who had uh, accused him and whatnot, and her husband. That had been settled in the 1930s. Um, but it seems that whatever incident had happened in 1949 was along similar lines. Now, the uh, accuser did end up retracting it a few years later. So I don't know the actual dynamics of this. But you know, I can say with certainty, he wasn't let go from the home mission board because of his advocacy with regard to the Holocaust. It was very much more in lines with something involving sexual harassment. It's just it's not exactly clear what exactly it was. Right. Yes, these histories are complicated. Uh, so let's let's circle back then to premillennialism. Um, I think this is you know very interesting, very fascinating. I think it's the way a lot of people think about the tie, the current day ties between evangelicals and um, prophecies and things about the the state of Israel. So along with Orientalism, there was also this band of nineteenth century Southern Baptists. You mentioned James Robinson Graves. Uh, people that heavily promoted Palestine as a land where certain premillennial dispensationalist prophecies would be fulfilled. Now, you've already talked about it a, a little bit, but could you explain in a little bit more depth what is premillennial dispensationalism and why was this theology so influential for Southern Baptist positions on Palestine? Yeah, so this, uh, it's a tangle explaining premillennial dispensationalism, but I right. hopefully I've, I've carved out a, a simple explanation over the years. So, Essentially, it's a system of, of biblical interpretation and eschatology, uh, as well as kind of a, a system of interpreting history. And basically what it argues is that you know, history is divided into different ages or different dispensations in which God engages with humankind in different ways. Uh, and in terms of the overall pattern of history, dispensationalists tend to argue that we are basically in the second to last dispensationalism at the uh, dispensation and at the end of the current one. Christ will come back and establish his millennial kingdom. You'll have a whole series of events uh, that will accompany the second coming of Christ, but Christ will establish his millennial kingdom um, here on earth. Now, mm -hmm. what distinguishes dispensationalism is, as well is, is the idea that within this broad pattern, uh, the biblical, the covenantal relation, the covenantal relationship between God and the people of Israel in the Bible is, is still ongoing, right? That that covenant has not been inherited by the church, that uh, the people of Israel is the Jewish people. And so God remains active and involved in Jewish history. 
And, and this also means that those covenantal relationships or those covenantal promises uh, depicted in the Bible are still active, namely the promise of the land, the covenant that the Jewish people, the people of Israel would have uh, their land. And so part of the dispensationalist schema is the idea that, first off, the land of Israel is Jewish land, ultimately. Like, God has set it aside specifically for the Jewish people by covenant. And that the fulfillment of this covenant will occur in some sort of relationship with the second coming of Christ. And there are different mm -hmm. schemes and, and different specific timelines related to that offered by disp different dispensationalists. But basically, God remains involved in, in, in the Jewish people, uh, the life of the Jewish people. The Jewish people have a prominent play, place or the most prominent place in God's plan for history. And they will play a leading role in events surrounding the second coming of Christ. So for some dispensationalists, so this, this was a minority perspective um, in the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's something you did have people, like you mentioned in the 19th century, J.R. Graves, who offered biblical interpretations that were, were pretty dispensationalist. Uh, in the 20th century, it would start to proliferate more as you had more and more institutions uh, within and without the Southern Baptist Convention that were, were promoting it. And as Baptists in general were exposed to it, they were though, so inevitably dispensationalists tended to be interested in Zionism. Like, is this part of God's plan for history? Do we see the covenants being fulfilled? Do we see the second coming coming around the corner? But they weren't consistent in terms of how they viewed the significance of that. So you do have some dispensationalists who, who don't think that the Zionist movement is part of God's plan for history. Uh, they believe that the Jewish people have to convert to Christianity before the plan would kick into motion, before uh, the covenants could be fulfilled. You have others, though, like Frank Norris, who comes along and says, absolutely, the Zionist movement is part of God's plan for history. Absolutely, it fits into this eschat eschatological timeline. Um, Jacob Gartenhouse himself believed these sorts of things. Uh, but I think, like, the most important thing that dispensationalism will yield is not, it's not so simple as like dispensationalism spread. And, you know, because people had believed in this system, they started to support Zionism. Rather, I think where dispensationalism has been influential is in kind of just some of the basic ideas, some of the basic emphases of dispensationalism will go farther than the actual system itself. So this basic idea that God still has a covenantal relationship with the Jewish people, the basic idea that the land of Israel somehow belongs to the Jewish people, the basic idea that the Jewish people will play some role at the climax of history, uh, those basic kind of fragmented dispensationalish ideas, I think, go a lot farther than the actual system itself. Uh, right. And so they'll start to color Southern Baptist thinking about the region as well. That's really interesting. And one of the things that I, I thought was fascinating, you, you talk about these different factions and that it was a minority position. And it, it seemed like, especially someone like Frank Norris was really leading uh, an early split in the Southern Baptist Convention over this theology, but that the split failed. But that ironically, and this is the part I'd never really thought about, ironically, it's the failure of the split that probably allowed that particular theology to become even more prominent. Um, talk about how you sort of saw that uh, trajectory playing out. 
Yeah. So th this was one of the tougher parts of the book to, to pin down because mm -hmm. you can tell dispensationalism and premillennialism more generally is spreading throughout the Southern Baptist Convention in the early part of the 20th century. But it's, it's really hard to gauge the extent to which it's spreading. Um, most of like the, the main Baptist institutions, you know, did not necessarily buy into it. And so it's, it's, it doesn't quite come through very clearly in the historical record. What is clear, though, is that it was very, very controversial, in part because, as you mentioned, uh, Frank Norris in the 1920s, like I said earlier, he's a rabble rouser. Um, he tried to use it as a wedge to break up the SBC and try to form some sort of new denomination, or at least that's what he was uh, accused of around premillennialism. So, you know, he, he's part of this broader fundamentalist movement that emerged really in the industrial north uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century that tended to emphasize the fundamentals of the faith, right? And, and, and right. preventing denominational institutions from, from rolling back or, or, or on the fundamentals of the faith. Norris tried to argue that a premillennial interpretation of the Bible and a premillennial eschatology was itself a fundamental like a key like cornerstone of Christian belief. And you did have a, a good number of fundamentalists, you know, within the, that broader movement who argued that. And so he tried to use that as a wedge to organize kind of these different, like this Baptist Bible union, all of these different fellowships to pull Baptist churches that were moving in that direction away from the SBC. Now the Southern Baptist convention for its part, it, it did not, it, it avoided, in general, it tried to avoid taking official doctrinal stances. It also embraced what, what scholars have called like the, the grand or the great compromise, like this attitude that the convention that Southern Baptists should, should not play up theological differences, um, should not try to commit individual Baptist churches to particular theologies be, because there is this bigger mission. There's this bigger, bigger mission of bringing Christ to the world and into the communities. So we're going to not focus on those differences. We're going to compromise on some basic. We're going to, to acknowledge that we're going to have some differences on uh, different theological issues. And we're just going to move forward with the missionary task of the church. So for that reason, like the Southern Baptist Convention ends up being pretty flexible. Like they're, they're not trying mm. to kick out any premillennialist uh, by any means. And you do have some prominent premillennialists who like have significant positions within the convention. And so Norris leads this charge. It ultimately fails and kind of that response to it, the response of saying like, you can have whatever eschatology that you want really, uh, really allows and encourages premillennialism to, to continue to spread within the Southern Baptist convention, even as Norris is, is railing on it, from the margins, from, from kind of the boundary of the convention. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting story. Well, so we're getting close to the end of our time. Before we do, let's talk about Harry Truman. Um, he is really sort of the, the uh, conclusion of your book. You, you side with the historical Southern Baptists here, and you argue that Truman's support for the creation of the state of Israel really came down to his Southern Baptist faith in, in some important ways. Now, he seems to have been what we might think of as a fairly liberal Baptist, very concerned about the creation of a moral world. Uh, so walk us through how you came to this conclusion about Truman. Yeah, so to kind of set it up, um, 
so so Harry Truman, Southern Baptist, as president, he he undertakes takes two steps that become really key to the establishment of Israel. Uh, for one, in 1947, he supported the United Nations plan to divide Palestine up into an Arab state and a Jewish state, which provides basically the, the legal basis for the establishment of Israel the following year. The following year, when that partition plan seemed not to be uh, working, you know, as Palestine was devolving into civil war, Truman recognized the state of Israel when it was proclaimed uh, in on May 14th, 1948. So those two steps like have have uh, made Truman in many ways like a, a hero of American supporters of Israel. And scholars have been divided on why Truman did that. Why did Truman end up supporting the Zionist movement? You have some scholars who argue that this was a cynical political calculation designed to get Jewish votes in crucial parts of the country. You have others who argue that this was a courageous decision, a moral decision to help suffering people, people who were suffering through the Holocaust, um, over the objections of the more calculating uh, State Department, who was only concerned about Cold War access to the Arab world. Okay, so you have these, mm-hmm. these different schools of interpretation. Now, within that fight, you do have some scholars that have argued that a key factor in guiding Truman to take these steps was his faith. And you have some scholars who have argued that Truman believed in the the biblical promises to the Jewish people and that Zionism was somehow a fulfillment of them. You have some scholars who have argued that Truman viewed himself like as a sort of Cyrus figure, that he deliberately modeled himself on Cyrus. And I actually, I argue against that. Um, I I argue that Truman's faith certainly played a role, uh, but I argue against this idea that he, he viewed the establishment of Israel in any way as a fulfillment of, of God's promises to the Jewish people, or that he really made, based his decision on the idea that he was a sort of, of Cyrus figure. And I think one of the, the key uh, factors in, in demonstrating that is that Truman actually supported a whole bunch of different Palestine policies uh, prior to eventually supporting the creation of the state of Israel. And so if, if, for instance, he supported this plan called the Morrison-Grady plan, put together by two uh, diplomats called Morrison and Grady, that would not have created an independent Jewish state. It would have created kind of a federated uh, state under uh, British rule. If, if that plan, and this was the plan that Truman supported for a while, if that plan had been implemented, I don't think we'd be talking about him you know, viewing that as a manifestation of God's promises to the Jewish people. So I think that, that plays a big right. role there. Uh, but I do think his faith played a role, and, and the, the role that I think it played, well, I think there, there are kind of three areas in which Truman's, again, as, as you know, kind of unique, more liberal Southern Baptist faith uh, played a role. First off, he shared with Southern Baptists the, the Orientalism that, that we see pervading everything. He really believed that uh, the Jewish people would make better, oops, sorry, <laughs> drop something here. The Jewish people would make better use of the land than the Arabs. And that really informed his decision. And you can see that in his memoirs. You can see that in some other sources from the era. Um, he also, he really did, like morality was at the center of his faith. Like he thought that was the whole point of religion in general. And he had this moral concern for Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, for, for the DPs, for the displaced persons, and viewed you know, uh, the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine eventually as, as a way to address that ongoing crisis. Uh, and then from his reading of the Bible, so he didn't have 
any like anything close to like a premillennialist or or you know fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible. He really kind of viewed it as a as a work of history and great art and and things of that sort. Um, mm-hmm. But his reading of the Bible did give him a sense that uh, you know the. Jews uh, migrating to Palestine was somehow appropriate, like was historically appropriate that the Jews did have a historical bond to the land, that this wasn't like Europeans invading a Middle Eastern uh, area, right? But that this was actually a return in some sense. And so I think those factors, they didn't drive his Palestine policy. Like I said, he embraced all sorts of different uh, approaches to solving the Palestine question, as it was called, mm-hmm. but they did make him amenable to arguments that supporters of Zionism within, without the administration, could make, and they kind of gave uh, an imprimatur to what ended up being a politically advantageous position to take, um, which was to support the establishment of Israel, which was you know a, a popular cause within the United States, particularly by that point in time among uh, the Jewish community. And so I don't think his faith drove his policy at all, but I think it allowed him to embrace uh, what was ultimately a politically advantageous course. Hmm. Well, Dr. Robbins, we are almost out of time here, but maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Are you doing more with this topic or moving on to other interests? Um, Related topic, but slightly moving on. So I've been focused on uh, looking at how non-Jews viewed the Palestine question related to the Zionist movement, and in particular how non-Jews tended to interpret the political developments of Palestine through key symbolic figures, like participant symbols. So uh, mm. how certain historical figures involved in, in Zionism, like Heim Weizmann, so how you had American non-Jews who really sort of invested their understanding of Zionism and the Palestine question in, in the symbolic but also real figure of Chaim Weizmann. Uh, Judah Magnus, this uh, liberal American rabbi who becomes the president of Hebrew University, becomes this big figure of interfaith cooperation. And so you have a lot of American non-Jews that invested their hopes for a peaceful resolution to the Palestine question in him as sort of a, a symbol so that's the project that I'm working on now, kind of walking through some of these like figures that became shorthand for how so many Americans interpreted the Palestine question uh, prior to, to the establishment of Israel. So uh, stepping slightly away from uh, the focus on evangelicals, but still on the general topic uh, that, that this book was written on. Awesome. Well, we will look forward to hearing more about that in the future. Well, Dr. Walker Robbins' book is Between Dixie and Zion, Southern Baptist and Palestine Before Israel. It is available now through the University of Alabama Press. Uh, Dr. Robbins, thanks so much for this contribution to our understanding of the evangelical and Jewish relationship, and good luck on all your future work. Thanks, Lane. You too. Thanks for some great questions. Well, thanks for listening to New Books in History. Make sure to subscribe to our channel, and we will catch you next time.